And oftentimes that message was a message that God would send to his people, the children of Israel. But as Yancey studied last week in our examination of Jonah, God had a message for Gentiles, the people who were Ninevites. And I think that that kind of evidences for us the concern and care that God had for people who were even outside of the nation of Israel. And this morning we're going to look at a message that God wanted shared to the southern kingdom of Judah through his prophet Joel. And so this morning we're going to look at the book of Joel. Well, who wrote the book of Joel? Well, if it wasn't already obvious enough to you, Joel wrote the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Puthiel. We don't know much about Joel. We don't know much about his history. We don't know much about his heritage. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had a family. We don't really know anything about him other than the fact that he's the son of this man, Puthiel. And we don't know much about that man. The name Puthiel means persuaded of God. And in the Hebrew alphabet, there's not a J. And so the way you would pronounce his name in Hebrew, Joel, would be Yol. And anytime you see a Hebrew name with an E-L, with the emphasis of the E-L, Joel, whether it's a prefix or whether it's a suffix, that is an indication of God, a name of God. So he bears a very strong name. There's roughly about a dozen men in the Bible whose name is Joel, but none of them have any connection or association with this Joel. And so the name of Joel in Hebrew means the Lord is God or Jehovah is God. When did Joel write this book? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there's two camps of thought. There are some people who think that he wrote it in the 6th century. There's other people who believe that he wrote it in the 8th century. I'm of the camp that I believe that he wrote it in the 8th century, and there's a number of reasons for that, and I don't want to get into all of those this morning, but I will share some evidences of that. For example, in Joel chapter 3, in verse 16, Joel says this, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The book of Joel is three chapters. It's a collection of prophetic poems. So in the last chapter, at the close of Joel's book, he makes this statement. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The very next book in the Bible is Amos, the minor prophet Amos. And in chapter 1 and in verse 2, Amos says this. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now, we know that the Bible is not necessarily written in chronological order. The book of Daniel is before this. The book of Daniel uh, was written during the time of the Babylonian invasion. And Joel is writing this about 150 years before the Babylonian invasion. We believe that Joel prophesied or ministered during the time of Amos. And we know that Amos was a prophet during the time of King Uzziah, which would have been in 760 B.C. to 750 B.C. He was a king. He had a coherent reign, but he was a sole king from that time. We know that because in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Teoch, which saw concerning um, Israel in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And so 
If Amos prophesied during the time of Uzziah, and we see similarities in the writings of Amos and Joel, you'll find a lot of identical language in both books. It tends to suggest among a lot of people that they are contemporaries. And so I believe that the evidence tries to show that it was written sometime in the 8th century. And there's other evidences such as his reference to the temple or Zion or Jerusalem. Um, And again, this book is written to the southern kingdom. So kind of a generalization that helps us kind of narrow down a time frame of when Joel prophesied. But what was the message that Joel had, that God had through Joel to the southern kingdom of Judah? Well, looking in Joel chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, we begin with this. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. And so here, Joel opens up with a question to the people of Judah. He says, have you ever seen anything like this in your days? Apparently, something happened that was very significant in Judah, that it got the people's attention, that it was something that was going to be passed down through generation through generation because of its importance and because of its significance. And apparently it was something that happened in the recent past because if you look here, it says, has such a thing happened? And so something recently happened to them that they were well aware of, that they were traumatized by, that it was going to be a defining moment in their heritage that they were going to tell their children and their children their children. But what happened that he asked them this question? Well, in verse 4, he says this, What the cutting locust left... The swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. God sent a devastating invasion of locusts that completely destroyed them agriculturally, economically, and individually. It was an expression of God's judgment upon the people of Judah. Why would God do that? You know, God's children, oftentimes, they would rebel. They would become idolaters. They would become apathetic to the Word of God, and God would send a prophet to them, and He would warn them that if they didn't straight up, He would bring judgment upon them. And sometimes the people listened, and sometimes the people didn't listen. And when they listened, God would relent His judgment on them, but when they didn't listen, He would express a judgment upon them. And what's interesting about Joel is Joel never tells us exactly what their exact sin is. But if we're playing off Amos and if we know anything about the children of Israel, history would tend to suggest that they were apathetic, that they were rebellious, and that they were idolaters. And God allowed this invasion of locusts to come upon them. And this is not figurative language. This is literal language. It's saying what the swarming locusts didn't eat, if there was anything left over, the crawling locusts ate it to the point where there was complete devastation and annihilation among Judah. If you recall back in Exodus chapter 10, when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and to demand that Pharaoh relinquish the children of Israel from Egyptian captivity, you remember Moses went and did that and he stood before Pharaoh and it says in Exodus chapter 10 verses 1 through 2, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh... For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. 
that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell of the hearing of your sons and of your grandsons how I dealt with them harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And then going down to verses 12 through 14. I'm having a hard time reading that back there, so I'm going to step aside. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for a locust, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all the hell has left. And so hundreds of years ago, God brings a devastation plague upon the Egyptians who are the enemies of God's children. But now we fast forward hundreds of years later and that judgment seems to be inverted. Now that judgment is not upon the enemies of God's people. That judgment is now upon His own people. Why? Well, the reason God sent a plague to Pharaoh was that they may know that he was the Lord. And when God sent a plague among the people of Judah, it was to get their attention to know that he was the Lord. And this wouldn't have been any surprise. The people of, the people of Judah wouldn't have looked around among themselves and scratched their head and said, I wonder why we're going through this. They knew that this plague of locusts was an expression of judgment on them by God. And the reason they would have known that, if you recall in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God told Moses when he was leading them up to a point to the promised land, he said, you're going to tell the children of Israel this, that I'm going to give them the land, and when they get into the land, if they do the things that I tell them to do, here are all the blessings that I'm going to give them. And the first half of that chapter in chapter 28 is all of the good things that God promises, all the good things that God said He would do for them if they would simply obey Him in behavior and in belief. And then in the second part of that chapter is God saying, okay, if you get into the land and you don't do the things that I tell you to do, here are the curses that are going to befall on you. And one of the things, one of the curses was this. We'll pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting in verse 20. The Lord will send to you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake and do, until you're destroyed and perish quickly on account of evil for your deeds, because you've forsaken me. The Lord will make pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of. We go down to verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a whore, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. So they were warned. If you get into the land and you don't do the things that God said, that God's going to bring judgment upon you. And so when God brings this invasion of locusts, it's God nudging them, getting their attention. It says there in, um, picking up in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine that is cut off from your lips. Apparently, even the drunks in the community were suffering because the vineyards were completely dried up. There was nothing there. It says, For a nation has come upon against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are a lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It was laid to waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. And so here we see a picture of just the utter devastation of this infestation. 
that it was an infestation that, again, that didn't just, wreck it, didn't just bother them. It wasn't just a nuisance. It was a national emergency. It was a national crisis. Now, when we think of, of locusts, sometimes I think we think of cicadia, and that's the picture down here. This is a cicadia. Some people oftentimes think that's a locust. But what invaded Israel was not the cicadia. It was more what we consider a grasshopper. When you look at um, Joel chapter 1, verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust, has eaten. That Hebrew word there for locust means a grasshopper. And so um, this is the, the insect that invaded the nation of Israel that God allowed. Now, in 1915, that was the last major invasion of locusts that happened in Jerusalem. And that picture right there is actually a picture that was taken in Jerusalem of the locust uh, when they had an invasion in 1915. This next slide here, this photograph over here is actually um, uh, preservations of some of the locusts that were um, stored or kept from that 1915 invasion. John Whitting was a writer for National Geographic and he made this statement concerning uh, the invasion of 1915. He says, whenever touched, or especially when finding themselves caught within one's clothes, they excluded from their mouth a dark fluid and irritant to the skin and soiling the garments in most disgusting manner. Imagine the feeling, we speak from experience, with a dozen or two such creatures over an inch long with saw-like legs and rough bodies making a race course of your back. That picture right there in the middle, that's actually a picture that was taken in Palestine. Um, they also suffered uh, uh, from this invasion in 1915. And then what that gentleman's doing there is he's got uh, an archaic flamethrower and they would try to, to burn off the insects or try to smoke them out to try to divert them to, to fly a different way, maybe not over the, their fields or their crops. And then lastly, this picture right here, this is a picture taken in Jerusalem and you can check out that guy's britches there with all the grasshoppers that, that are on him. John Whittington said that the 1915 invasion of locusts was so horrific that if a child was left out in the open for just a matter of seconds, that literally those locusts could devour its eyes. Um, in 2004, in Morocco, there was an invasion of locusts or grasshoppers that measured over 142 miles long. They estimated that in that there were roughly 69 billion grasshoppers. And it's measured that at least 1 million grasshoppers can eat up to as much as what 5,000 people can eat in a day. So again, when you think of invasion of locusts, don't think, oh, that 15-year, 17-year event of cicadia that we have, that's a nuisance. Think of utter devastation. Think of complete annihilation of the land. That picture right there is a picture that was taken in 1915 of a tree in Jerusalem. And um, the, this is a National Geographic um, article. And what they did, because it's 1915, they took silver gelatin prints. And they took a picture of this tree. This invasion of locusts or grasshoppers comes through. They took a picture of that tree afterwards. And that is what you had left over from it. So again, trying to express just how devastating it would have been to the people of Judah. Whenever you look at Joel, there's this theme throughout the book of Joel. 
and it's the day of the Lord. In chapter 1, we see the locust invasion. That's referred to as a day of the Lord. And that's an expression of God's past judgment on them. God's already brought that judgment. It was in their recent past. He's drawing their attention to it, saying you're going to tell your children, they're going to tell their children of it. But when you segue into chapter 2, we read this. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. And so Joel says, here's God's judgment upon you, the day of the Lord in the form of this locust. But when you get into chapter 2, apparently God's not done with them yet. He's called them to repentance because there's something that's going to happen in the near future. He says, it's near. What's he referring to there? He's talking about the foreign armies of Babylon, the foreign armies of Syria to the north, that God said if they didn't repent, that he was going to allow these armies to come in and to destroy them. And he does it through symbolic language. He, talks, he has this language of an army that's it's an army of locusts, but God's in charge of this army. And what he's saying is, is that if you don't turn around and if you don't repent, God's going to allow these armies to come in and completely wipe you out. And 150 years later, Babylon didn't do that. <clears throat> so we see this idea of a future day of the Lord coming. Whenever you see that term, day of the Lord, in the Bible, if we were to find it, I would say it's this. It's a phrase that expresses God's intervening judgment or retribution upon a nation or people. It can be past or, uh, or present, or past or future. So, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. What is this referring to? This is referring to the day in which God will have enough and He will send His Son and people will be coming before judgment, before the, the, the throne seat of Jesus Christ. And that's referring to the day of the Lord, a day when God will bring judgment upon the earth, God's final judgment. Also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's a reference to a future judgment when Christ returns. That phrase, the day of the Lord, it's used roughly 17 times in the Old Testament. And five of those times are in the book of Joel. So as you can imagine, it's the overarching theme of the book, God's judgment uh, throughout, throughout the book of Joel. We see Peter on the day of Pentecost cites the book of Joel. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so if you recall, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up. He's preaching to them the first gospel sermon. And what was his sermon? You by wicked hands took the Son of God and you crucified Him. And you're guilty of that? You're guilty of your sin? You're guilty of the death of Jesus Christ? And he's drawing their attention, what? To the judgment of God. The judgment of God will be placed on you if you do not what? Acts 2 and 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes him a quote from Joel there in Joel chapter 2, verses 17. This is what Peter's saying. It's a quote taken exactly out of Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes." And great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the same language that we see in Joel chapter 2. What is Joel telling them? That if you don't repent, if you don't come to God, in chapter 2, he's going to allow judgment upon you in the form of an army. Peter is echoing that. If you don't repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ through baptism, then you will perish in the judgment of God. That's coming. I was looking, it reminded me in Matthew chapter 24. You see that language there about the sun being darkened. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give their light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. What's that referencing? The destruction of Jerusalem. That was an expression of God's judgment upon those people for their rejection of Jesus Christ. It was a defining moment in which God would no longer... At the cross it stopped, but it was an expression of His judgment on the people of Israel that we're no longer doing this worship and animal sacrifice in the temple. It's over with. In Revelation chapter 6, you go over to the 6th chapter of Revelation, reading in about verses 12. And behold, and when He had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell upon the earth. Even a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll, and when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of its places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks and the mountains." And said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is to come. That's similar language. We see it in Joel. We see it in Acts. We see it in Matthew chapter 24. All of those are in regard to a different expression of God's judgment upon people. He says there that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see Paul writing that uh, similar uh, message in Romans chapter 10 and verses 12 through 13. There is neither no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's inclusive. You know, when you look at the book of Joel, it almost looks like God is pleading for these people to repent. He's begging them to repent. Now, I want you to think about when somebody wrongs you. As a Christian, you may sit back and think, you know what? I'm supposed to forgive people, and I'll be willing to forgive people, but I'll just sit over here and wait till they come and ask for my forgiveness. God is actively begging, pleading these people to be saved. In the book of Joel, we see a message to a call of repentance. It says, put on sackcloth and lament. That word lament there means to mourn or to wail. God is asking them to repent, to have a sincere repentance, to have a genuine heart 
of repentance. It says, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God. What's the significance of that? Well, if you were a Jew and you were tasked with bringing sacrifices to the temple, grain offerings, animal sacrifices, all of those things, they were your access to God, your ability to access God, to worship God. And because the land is devastated through this locust invasion, there's no meat, there's no food, there's no grain, there's no wine. They couldn't come and access God. It was a, it was, God shut them off. And that's the lesson in God's judgment. When God comes back and the finality of His judgment, people are shut off. And that's why God's pleading with them to repent and to come to Him so that He doesn't have to exercise His judgment upon them. It says in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and render your garments, and render your hearts and not your garments. What, what is God trying to get them to do? He's trying to say, I want you to repent, but I want it to be a genuine, sincere repentance. I don't want you to come before me with this superficial, I'm sorry. I want you to be sorry for the fact that you didn't do the things that I said and you violated my holy commands and statute. And I want that to, to prick your heart. Isn't that what the Bible says? That a contrite heart, God's not going to reject. You know, oftentimes in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, you read about people rendering their garments or tearing their garments. That's a sign of mourning. That's a sign of, of, of being broken. And God said, spare me you ripping your clothes. What I want you to rip open is your heart. And I want it to be sincere. What's the message in that for us? is that when we repent, it's not a superficial, I'm sorry, but it, it affects our hearts that, that we violated God's, not that we're in trouble, not that we're suffering consequences, but that we violated a holy command of God. And that's the motivation for repentance. Remember in Luke chapter 18, God, uh, Jesus is talking about the publican and the sinner, how they went into the temple to pray, and the publican who was a tax collector, and the Pharisee goes in and talks about, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. But a tax collector who is normally a Jew, who would work on behalf of the Roman government, would go around and take advantage of his own countrymen, take money from them, because of that guilt and this this imagery that Jesus tries to give us here, says he couldn't even lift up his head to heaven. Who walked away justified from that? The person who was sincere in their repentance was the one that God accepted. And one of the themes from the book of Joel is God's eagerness and willingness to forgive you if you'll just repent and be sincere about it. And if you repent and you're sincere then God will relent His judgment. Joel chapter 2, verse 25. Then the Lord became jealous for His land, and He had pity on His people. God has pity on people. Do you have pity on people? When someone wrongs you, do you have pity on them? I mean, that's, that's a heart of forgiveness, right? God has pity on people. You know, Yancey gave a lesson last week on Jonah. Remember what Jonah did? 
God told him to go and to tell those people to repent. He did his little thing where he ran away, and then God sends him back, and he goes in, he tells these people to repent, and then he goes and sets up on a hill, and he looks down at these people as they surprisingly repented. And it says he basically crossed his arms up there, and he became angry. Why was he angry? Because God showed pity and mercy on a group of barbaric, savage people who didn't even know God, who were not even a part of the nation of Israel, but yet God is having pity on these people? Why? Remember what God told him in Jonah chapter 4, I think in verse 11? He says, Jonah, is it wrong for me to have pity on those people? There's 120,000 people down there who don't know their left hand from their right hand. Is it wrong for God to have pity on people in their ignorance? I mean, to me, that makes me have more of an appreciation for the mercy and the willingness of God to forgive people. That God would, for, would send a messenger to forgive people who were not even His own people. What made them any different from any other nation in the Old Testament? I don't know, but God looked at them and their complete ignorance and had mercy and sympathy and pity on them. And that's what he says here in Joel chapter 2. Then the Lord came jealous of his land and had pity on his people. These people repented. It required them to repent. It required them to have a sincere heart. When God sent Jonah into Nineveh, he didn't just say, I have pity on these people, so I'm going to forgive their sins. No, the message was you're going to go into Nineveh and you're going to tell them to repent. And if they repent, I will relent the judgment. And that's what he's saying here. Joel chapter 2, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, and the hopper, and the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. This is also um, exciting and fascinating to read that God said, if you'll repent, I will restore what you lost. Going back up, behold, I'm sending you grain the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. At one point in the, in the book of Joel, he says, If you repent, who knows? I might leave you a grain offering. I might leave you a, a wine offering. God said, If you'll repent, who knows? I might be able to give you some things. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, sometimes I think we, I have in my life, I looked at God as God sits on His throne and He waits for weak human beings to come crawling back to Him. And yes, there's a sign of humility in doing that. And God's saying, okay, go through the process of repentance. God wants you to repent. God has an eagerness and a willingness to forgive people. He's not harboring back that mercy for those who truly seek it with a contrite heart. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even, on the make and, and fe even male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit." Part of his expression of mercy to those people, we see here in Joel chapter 2, is the pouring out of the Spirit. Where do we see that? That's foreshadowing, right? That's foreshadowing to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit was poured, poured out. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and all your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. Even my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So Peter here, again, quotes Joel on the day of Pentecost in the first gospel sermon. So what are some of the themes of the book of Joel? What can we learn from the book of Joel? First thing I take away is this. Uh, the book of Joel was written to warn people about a day of judgment and encourage people to repent to a willing and merciful God so that he would relent his judgment. God wants a contrite heart in our repentance. He doesn't want a superficial, I'm sorry. He doesn't want to show people who truly are sorry are the people who he's interested in offering his mercy. God is eager to forgive all people who are truly heartbroken of their sin and obey him. There is a day of the Lord, and there is a future day of the Lord. There was a past day of the Lord, past day of the Lord, when God was going to bring judgment upon them in the form of a locust invasion. God promised them that if they didn't straighten up, He would bring a day of the Lord on them in the form of an invasion of an army and the destruction of Jerusalem. That was a day of the Lord. It was an example of God's judgment upon people, and there's a finality to all of this in the last day when God will send His Son, and that will be a day of retribution for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. At, at times in our repentance, God is willing to restore what's lost. God said, I'm willing to restore to you the grain, the wine, the livestock. And in us, sometimes it can be relationships, maybe health, other blessings. If it's God's will, God has shown in His nature through the Old Testament that He's willing to do that at times for people who sincerely repent to, restore, to bring restoration in their lives. If God's eager to forgive, then we should be excited and eager to forgive other people. When God says, you know, if you repent, who knows, I might be able to give you a blessing. That shows an eagerness and a willingness and an excitement on God to offer an invitation of mercy to those people. And if that's the character and the nature of God, we want to mirror that as well. And then lastly, God's plea for people to repent shows His desire to relent judgment. God has a desire. He doesn't want to have to punish people, but because of His holy nature and because of who He is, by, by uh, His very nature, He has to render judgment for those who don't obey Him. And so this is the message in the book of Joel. Um, I appreciate your attention this morning. You've been a very good audience at this time. If you have a matter that you'd like to bring before the congregation, we ask that you stand as we sing.